A community off northern Vancouver Island is at the center of an eerie mystery. People in Alert Bay say they've been hearing strange screams and howls from the forest at night. And the legend of the Sasquatch runs deep in their First Nations culture. The legend of Bigfoot is resurfacing in a western North Carolina town. A man in Cleveland County says he saw the mythic beast just last week. And she says it looked just like Chewbacca from Star Wars. Could something that appears like it's from out of this world actually exist right here at home? Wherever the forest dominates the landscape, the legend of the Sasquatch has loomed large in the imagination. Commonly known as Bigfoot in North America, the Yeti in the Himalayas, Sasquatch lore dates back thousands of years and can be traced to some of the continent's earliest indigenous tribes. And yet, for all its cultural significance, for all the blurry photographs of a brown splotch in the distance, there's never been a piece of incontrovertible evidence, a strand of hair, a tooth, a body on a slab, that has once and for all proved its existence. So what brings so many back to the forest, time and again, searching for an elusive creature they've never been given reason to believe is there? What inspires the amateur Bigfoot hunters and cryptozoologists to dedicate their lives in the face of widespread scorn to this elusive beast? Is it the thrill of the chase, or something more personal, more profound? Welcome to Mountain Mythic, exploring the peaks and valleys of mountain culture. Recorded at WMN Studio in Function Junction, deep in the heart of Whistler, British Columbia. I'm Braden Dupuy. And I'm Brandon Barrett. And in this episode, we're going to be looking at some local lore, some, some local Whistler myths. And in my piece, we'll be going out on the hunt for Sasquatch. And a little bit later on, we're going to have local author, musician, patron of the arts, longtime local Stephen Vogler in to talk some of his favorite Whistler myths. We've got another great episode in store for you, so stay tuned for more Mountain Mythic. We are back in the studio for episode two of Mountain Mythic. And before we get started, I just wanted to throw a shout out to local musician, songwriter, blues man Monty Biggins, who provided the original tune you heard off the top of the show. We kind of gave him a couple suggestions, and a couple hours later, we had our theme music. So a huge thanks to Biggins for that. Uh, so yeah, on today's show, we're really going to dig into some of that local lore. And we mentioned last episode how you are almost like the peak Sasquatch correspondent. Yeah, at this point, that's it's uh, one of my more, more common beats. Um, <laughs> besides kind of looking like Bigfoot, I, I've always had a keen interest in it. I wrote a feature um, in 2014 where I went to Harrison Hot Springs, which is known as the North American capital uh, of Sasquatch. And I went uh, with a local Sasquatch hunter out um, in the forest. We uh, we didn't find him, but it was a, a really <laughs> interesting experience. So just, wait, just stop there. You didn't find Bigfoot? You're... No, I okay. believe it or not, okay. I yeah yeah I would have I would have told so you the, if the I feature did. then it was pretty much a failure. right? It was a failure. Yeah, I came back uh, empty-handed, but uh, the hunt lives on. I still am holding out hope. <laughs> I feel like it is in this kind of thing. It is almost more about the thrill of the hunt. Yeah, I think so. It's it, it's it's the chase. I think that that a lot of these amateur Sasquatch hunters are after. You get the sense that if they did find Bigfoot, maybe they would be a little disappointed like the magic (laughs) the magic would be lost right like because he he does have this mythical quality and if if the sasquatch was just another you know 
organism in, on the biological record, it would lose some of that mystique, I think. No, absolutely. So obviously there's been a lot of sightings in British Columbia. I mean, has there been a lot in the local area? Is, is this a Whistler thing too? Yeah, there has been a few. You know, there has been about 3,000 uh, recorded sightings since 1920 in all of BC. Um, many of those are concentrated to Harrison Hot Springs, but there has been a few over the years in Whistler. Um, for example, in 1970, a foreman named Bill Taylor reported seeing a seven-foot-tall uh, beast scamper across the road with a fist, a fish uh, clutched in his fist. Um, that was at north of Squamish. Um, a family of three that was hiking along uh, an abandoned logging route in the Chequemus Canyon. About a decade ago, they heard this uh, booming grunt and... Um, and saw this creature scurry across the road. It freaked out their dog, and they all kind of reported this foul odor uh, permeating the air. <laughs> That's interesting. <laughs> yeah, so there has been a few. There's been there's been even more than that, and, they, and a lot of them are, are concentrated to the Callahan. Um, and, uh, yeah, you'd be surprised at how many there actually has been over the years. Wait a minute. Let's get back to the foul odor. <laughs> is that, is that uh, something that is attached to a lot of Bigfoot sightings? Is that something? It's actually, uh, yeah, the, the, a lot of people that... That um, have reported um, sightings um, do report this this smell, kind of a rotten fish smell um, in the air after after seeing the supposedly seeing the Bigfoot. I guess that's consistent with the, my own imagination of what Bigfoot would be like. I don't imagine he is really big on hygiene. I don't think he's he's taking any showers or using any zest, you know, <laughs> uh, in the river or anything like that. He, you know, he lives off the grid. He doesn't have to worry about that sort of thing. Exactly. Yeah, and uh, it is really interesting. I really did enjoy I mean you worked on that feature you put a lot of effort into it and I really enjoyed it I think a lot of people did but one of my favorite parts was I guess you relating uh, how did it go I forget the exact wording but it was basically these people seeing a bit of themselves they're not really looking for Bigfoot they're looking for an idealized version of themselves and I found that really interesting yeah I mean it's you get the sense that the the guys that um, go out looking for Bigfoot ultimately want to be Bigfoot. They're, they tend to be these guys that live sort of on, and I say guys, but it's guys and girls, that live sort of on the fringes of society, not exclusively, but but many of them do. They, they really, um, you know, have an affinity for the wilderness. They like being alone. They like being isolated. And they don't like sort of answering to the rules of society, which is kind of what Bigfoot does. He, he does his own thing. He's a lone wolf. <laughs> right? Yeah, it does sound kind of nice. It's almost that going off the grid fantasy, uh, living by your own rules, that kind of thing. Yeah, I can I can totally relate to Bigfoot too. Maybe I'm going to start becoming a Bigfoot hunter. Uh, yeah, you... I don't know. You don't seem very. Uh... I, I don't believe in your in your skills. <laughs> Nobody I've, ever does. I've seen you. I've seen your outdoors skills. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how I feel. We did paddle a canoe together once. Is that right? yeah? We did. It, and I was supposed to be steering, but I didn't do a very good job. I don't know what this has to do with Sasquatch hunting. It's about but... my outdoorsman skills. <laughs> <laughs> so, all right, we're gonna hear a little piece that you put together about Sasquatch. Uh, tell us a little bit about the piece. Well, I met up with Scott Green, who's a longtime Whistler guy. Um, was once a skeptic, has become a Sasquatch believer after he had something uh, of an encounter with the elusive beast. I also spoke with a folklorist down in Utah who shed some light on the continued appeal of the Sasquatch, um, the legend around it, the mythology around it. It was, it was a lot of fun. Walking up to Scott Green's home, I'm welcomed by a stone carving of Bigfoot perched on his balcony. Scott greets me in a black Sasquatch Genome Project t-shirt 
and is quick to show off his carving of a large 14-inch footprint found in the backwoods of Oregon in 1994. A Whistler old-timer, Green is an avid mountain biker who helped build many of the downhill trails that dot the resort. That means, of course, that he spent his fair share of time out in the backcountry, where he had his first encounter with the elusive creature. But he wasn't always a believer. He used to argue with people uh, how there's absolutely not a chance in the world. I said, my line, I had three lines, and it'd be, where's the body, where's the bones, doesn't exist. And so it was just an open and shut case, which I gave under 30 seconds of my time to. My experience was up on a mountain bike trail in Whistler. Uh, it's pretty isolated. The only uh, way in and out is uh, on foot or bike. And uh, it's been non-logged and it's uh, bordering Garibaldi Park. So it hasn't been luckily logged and mined by man. And so basically it's in a, a state that uh, since the beginning of time hasn't been uh, disturbed. And uh, me and a buddy were uh, in there uh, not riding. Uh, we, were, we were doing some maintenance work on a trail and um, we were in complete silence for three hours. We had no power tools and uh, you could hear a pin drop. Never thought anything of it. And at the end of the three hours, a Sasquatch cried out as loud as a jet engine, which is about 120 decibels. It reverberated the jerseys on our chest. It was so loud that, uh, louder than a car horn, and it was eight seconds long, which is a long time, and it was deafening. And, um, you know, anybody standing there at the time, don't matter if you were the most non-believer in the world, you would have said, you know, what made that noise? And people said, oh, well, possibly it was a cougar giving birth or it was a bear dying. And I said, no, I found the exact audio on YouTube and it's the heading of the website was Sasquatch Audio and it was to the T. Scott wrestled with the memory of his encounter, unsure of what to make of it. I went from being a uh, non-believer to a Sasquatch experiencer. And uh, once you become a Sasquatch experiencer, uh, it's not a matter of believing, um, it's a matter of uh, just coming to terms with it. And it takes a while. It took me well over a year, uh, maybe two years before I could actually uh, get some sort of understanding about it because it's just so out of the box. You're isolated in your belief and you're isolated uh, because what are you going to do? Walk down the street and start talking to Sasquatch to people? Uh, but that's exactly what I do. Now I talk to anybody that'll listen and uh, I've met all sorts of people uh, that uh, tell me about their uncle or their grandfather or their experience. And uh, it's just, it just becomes a, a real passion because, you know, you can't deny it. Uh, you, can, you can kick and scream all you want that Sasquatch isn't real, but uh, once you become an experiencer, you, you sure eat those words. Scott came to terms with his Bigfoot experience after going online and discovering an entire community of fellow believers, experiencers, and cryptozoological investigators. That's when his hobby started to turn into a full-blown obsession. He traveled to conventions, he went on a Sasquatch hunt with an ex-Marine, and began a back and forth with some of the world's top Bigfoot researchers. Scott had found his tribe. Hello? Hi, is that Lynn? Yes, hi. Hi, it's Brandon from Peak. How are you? I'm doing very well. How are you? Here's Lynn McNeil, 
folklorist at Utah State University. In the past, you know, you could get on the telephone and call someone halfway around the world, but you had to know who you were calling. Nowadays, you can go online and just cast the net wide, post on a web forum and say, hey, I think I've seen Bigfoot. I'm interested in looking for Bigfoot. Anyone else out there with me? And you can have people from all over the world respond. So technology has really aided this community. And I think the sharing in the experience is the other big thing that happens here. This is a an experience that is made to be shared, like a lot of outdoors experiences are. But that connection to community pales in comparison to the kinship many Sasquatch believers feel to the creature itself, says McNeil. That's an idea that's very appealing to a lot of people, is that the world still works that way. And I think on a personal level, people want themselves to fit into that idealized world. They want there to be a way that they can be that connected to our planet, that connected to nature, that connected to wilderness, that able to have that sort of peace and isolation and lack of contemporary life destructions that the existence of Bigfoot speaks to. If Bigfoot can live, if Bigfoot is real, then that's a possibility. That level of connection to nature, escape from contemporary life, that's all possible. Scott doesn't necessarily buy that theory. He doesn't see himself reflected in the Sasquatch. But it's clear, at least to me, that the creature represents his idealized view of the world. I don't see myself in the Sasquatch, but I see uh, that, um, you know, maybe I can help the uh, uh, progression along. I don't know if it's going to benefit Sasquatch that much, but... uh, um, they say that the reason that Sasquatch is coming forward now is basically the sharing of information on the internet and that the Sasquatch is like the uh, uh, gatekeeper of the planet and uh, they see what's going on with the destruction of the oceans and the forest and um, that their, their time is now to come forward and, and get man to recognize this destruction and quit battling with each other and work it as a, as a group for a common goal to better the planet. And so this is what's coming down the pipe regarding Sasquatch. And so I feel if I can be a, uh, uh, at, at all like one iota of help to, to bring it mainstream, uh, it's a bonus. I mean, for me to just walk away and put my hands up, that's not going to work. The Bigfoot sits at this interesting intersection between the world of man and beast. It's not quite human and not quite animal, which in its own way offers a blank canvas to project all our deeply held values and beliefs onto. Ultimately, the Sasquatch tells us more about ourselves than it does the legend. It represents the untamed wild, a fierce independence from civilization, and provides a glowing reflection of the men and women who've dedicated their lives to the pursuit of this legendary, unknowable creature. I can't tell you one way or another if Bigfoot exists. My rational brain says no, but my sensational brain wants to believe. And isn't that the appeal of the Bigfoot? It's a lot more interesting sitting with that uncertainty, the magic of the mystery, the thrill of the chase that continues time and again to lead us into the dark of the woods. Shut up and sit down.
All right, we are back here at WMN Studio in Function Junction, and we are joined today by longtime local champion of the arts, author of the book Only in Whistler, Tales of a Mountain Town, Stephen Vogler. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks for having me, Braden. Good to be here. Yeah, absolutely. It's a beautiful sunny day outside. Now, I've moved around a lot in my time. Whenever I move to a new place, it's always interesting to me to learn, I guess, the local lore and to hear the stories about the people that have come before Every town and place kind of has its stories, its local legends. Uh, I've only lived in Whistler for about two years or so, so my own local knowledge is relatively limited, but you pretty much wrote a book about it. Yeah, uh, only in Whistler, Tales of a Mountain Town, and uh, for that one I dug into a lot of local uh, people's stories, a bit of a bit of humor, and there's a lot of zany kind of crazy stories that this valley produces for some reason. <laughs> That's interesting. Yeah, I actually I bought the book and I haven't read the whole thing yet, but I feel what? like it, <laughs> it's on my list. It's somewhere somewhere down the list of good, what I good. need to read. But it seems to me like Whistler would be uh, it would might produce some more of these stories than the average town would. Yeah, um, I think. This is my theory about, we were talking about myths earlier and story and, and places. And I think places, by their geography or whatever it is, influence the, the people who, who end up living there and the stories that unfold. And so I think maybe Whistler, because it's, we're up here at the top of this pass. That's the name of another one of my books, Top of the Pass. <laughs> I'll just throw that plug in there. Yeah. And um, But yeah, so we're up here, like high up on the pass. The water drains out of both sides of the valley, which is very unique um, geographical location. And I think that influences who ends up living here, maybe, and the type of type of activities and stories that, that unfold. I, there's a bit of a zany craziness about the place. <laughs> and uh, I think that carries on through you know, that those stories are happening now, too. Definitely, yeah. And I guess, uh, I, as I mentioned, I've only been here a couple of years. You've been here a long time. When did you uh, move here? How long have you lived here? Uh, yeah, it was um, in 1976, and uh, I was a kid, uh, and my brother and sister, and uh, my parents moved up here from Vancouver. 500 people lived in the town, and it was it was a really zany place. It was like ski bum, um, squatting, kind of outback. A lot of people who were trying to get away from it all moved here. And uh, yeah, so it was a pretty unique place. Definitely. I'd imagine, uh, especially as a child, I guess, what's it like growing up in that atmosphere with all these crazy characters around and these stories? Yeah. Well, you, you know, whenever you're a kid, you think everything's normal. So uh, <laughs> that's what I thought. But a lot of my, some of my friends lived in squatters cabins. Others lived without any parents. And, uh, and then others were completely your average middle class family, you know. So yeah, a bit of everything. Definitely. Uh, so to prep you for the show, we asked you to think of some of your favorite Whistler myths. Let's go there, I guess. Uh, if you had to pick a few, uh, let's, yeah. just, let's just hear some of them. Yeah, I was thinking about that. One one story that I really like that kind of ties the old Alta Lake town, the original town, to the new Whistler Resort community is uh, one about the, the um, founding of the garbage dump. So a lot of people know that the village was built on a garbage dump, but not a lot of people know how that garbage dump came to be. So this is how it happened. Let's hear it. So the old Rainbow Lodge at Alta Lake, uh, it was known for its wicked Saturday night parties, dances, the bar just pouring like crazy. And all the way through the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, um, things started to slow down a bit in the 50s until uh, around late 50s, early 60s, the talk of building Whistler Mountain and, uh, and a potential Olympic site. And so all of a sudden, all these people started coming up on the train again, and they'd stay at the lodge, and they'd go hike around, maybe ski a bit, or they'd go scouting out land to buy, like um, 
another great tradition in this valley. <laughs> and uh, so it got really busy again at these these Saturday nights, and they uh, um, the the people who ran it, they, the the locals and whoever worked there, and the, and the Phillips, they had this tip jar at the bar, and it was called the All Sots Fund, which stood for Alta Lake Sons of Tipplers. So tipplers was a used term in those days for a drinker, <laughs> and so they started raking in a whole lot of money in the All Sots jar. Uh, but the downside was all these people showing up were stru- strewing their garbage about the railroad tracks along Rainbow and Alta Lake, and it was becoming really unsightly. So the the locals decided to of Alta Lake decided to clean this up. So they they used the fund from the Allsots tip jar to get 45 gallon drums from Velo's logging camp up by Mons, brought these barrels there, loaded them all up with garbage, and they started stacking them. And then, but then it got to be so much that they were uh, they were amassing. So then, then they got a truck, and um, they they got permission from the provincial government to start a garbage dump. And it was across the valley on this kind of already logged off gravelly patch at the base of Whistler and Blackcomb Mountain. So they drove all these barrels over there and started uh, started the garbage dump, which, as we all know, became Whistler Village. Yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, so I like how that sort of ties that bit of that zany party attitude between the eras of the town you know absolutely no that's really interesting to think about and i guess that's kind of whistler's origin story and i guess for a lot of people who come here they probably don't even know that there's a garbage dump under yeah the, the village is and now. that's what we do because then we built another village the athletes village on the next garbage dump <laughs> so i don't know where the next one's going but follow the garbage follow. right that's what they always say <laughs> i think that's how the saying goes uh so another one i wanted to touch on this is one that uh i think it gets a lot of uh, a lot of press time a lot of air time lots of people talk about this one but dusty's horse dusty's the horse dusty the horse yeah so it's it's kind of like a um uh trilogy novel but i'll just try to <laughs> encapsulate it a little bit so um when dusty's opened it used to be called Lapres. And then Whistler Mountain took it over the bar at the base of Creekside in Whistler. They, they wanted this Western theme. They called it Dusty's. And the, the centerpiece was this old uh, busting bronco from Texas, uh, Stuffed. And it was actually quite a famous horse in its day, I've learned. So it was set up in the corner of the, of the bar and all these hijinks and stuff, uh, uh, women riding it topless, and I'm not going to mention any names. But uh, <laughs> anyway, and then finally when they, again, they switched and they wanted to get all this paraphernalia, Western paraphernalia out of there. And so Dusty was auctioned off, um, ended up with some ski patrollers in the, in the ski patrol cabin, ended up on top of Whistler Mountain hanging from a lift evacuation practice line at the peak on a beautiful sunny day. Tourists arriving up on the red chair going, why is there a horse hanging in the air, honey? I don't know, but I'm, let's, we better call the, uh, um, the cruelty to animals society or whatever. So all this happened, and then, then Dusty went on some more capers. He ended up being snowmobiled across to Blackcomb, uh, ended up standing on top of a um, lifty um, hut at the top of, uh, it was called Chair 2 in those days, and greeting the guests again. Uh, ended up, and then, this is my favorite party, he, uh, so he kind of had like 9 or 15 lives, and this was all after he was already dead. <laughs> and uh, so then he was taken down to the dump to be unceremoniously buried in the, in the garbage dump to get back to garbage. <laughs> and, but as they were going over the bridge of the Chequemus River, the old log bridge, uh, in a pickup truck, Dusty jumped, leapt out of the truck, landed down in the river. Who would have known? And uh, so people, some kayaker found the horse, 
called the RCMP. The RCMP came down, saw this dead horse. It must have fallen off the cliffs just next to the creek. The Chequemus River is really roaring there. Um, they got invested a lot of resources in a crane and uh, divers, pulled the horse up, and then they found this um, uh, mark, uh, what's it called, a... Um, brand on on the rear end of the horse they called the local wrangler there were some stables up by mons in those days this guy comes down he looks at it and he goes yep that there is dusty he's been <laughs> dead for 50 years <laughs> and so they there was like charges were laid and they tried to trace the owner of the horse no and I, I don't have time to go into it all but and then he had a couple more little minor things he Still not done. Dusty ended up back in a lifty shack on Blackcomb, more or less just sort of a crumpled pile of skin and fur and a head. Another spent a winter there, and then uh, and then finally was burned in a grand funeral pyre in lot six or seven at the base of uh, oh, no the way. upper base of Blackcomb, and now his ashes are all among us. <laughs> so that was the end of Dusty. Yeah, that was his final chapter. A fitting end. That's amazing. I mean, that that kind of story just really speaks to, I guess. The the, the wild, unpredictable nature of Whistler. And exactly, the, the party yeah. the atmosphere. Yeah, so, and I think those are kind of unique. I mean, every town has its crazy stories, but yeah. uh, this one has a good uh, good lot of them. <laughs> yeah, that one's my one of my favorites for sure. Uh, I guess, is there any, uh, in just uh, off the top of your mind, or is there any others that you wanted to talk about right now? Um, well, there's other kinds of myths. Like, there's this myth that everyone who lives in Whistler is uh, rich, which I find amusing and as we all do like well, everyone our friends people we know because there's a lot of money in this town mm -hmm. and so people outside think oh oh you live in Whistler you're rich but uh, my friends can all attest to the fact that the, there's not equal distribution of wealth in this town <laughs> <laughs> but people come here because I think because of a lot of that that certain energy about the place and they love it and they find a way to, to stay here. And then there's another um, little myth, one of the false ones, that my brother and sister and I were born here. And like before, you know, we were kids when we moved here, but before it was that was sort of understood. But over the last 10 years or so, all of a sudden I've discovered I was born here. <laughs> so these, these myths just kind of crop up and take on a life of their own. Yeah, no doubt. I guess, uh, do you have any insight into why, why that is? What makes up a good myth? Why are people so interested in this kind of story? Yeah, I think um, myths, you know, tap in, like the ones that, that are, uh, they tap into something, a deeper current of, of a place and, and try to find some meaning of what it is to, to live in that place and uh, what, what connects us to it. Mm -hmm. So I think maybe this, like, almost like the stories themselves are searching, searching out some kind of truth. And, you know, we could go back to the, the First Nations here, the Little Wat, and, you know, they have um, mythologies about stories about this valley, actually. I've, I've dug into a bit of that through, um, there's a book called The Little Wat World of Charlie Mack, and it's really great. Um, Randy Bouchard and Dorothy Kennedy were ethnologists, and they they got all these stories from him, and some of them are like there's about a mythical snake uh, that that created the River of Golden Dreams, mm -hmm. and there was a, a tunnel. It used to be a tunnel through the rock, apparently at the between Alta and Nita Lake, right where the right where it goes over the right at the watershed divide, and that was that was supposed to have been created by this mythical serpent uh, going through. So there, and there's you know there's Sasquatch stories and and all kinds of stuff. It's great to to dig into it, and we're we're a bit you know we tend to to not um, learn them all, but we should. Absolutely. No, I really agree. <laughs> I, I love the uh, the tradition. I guess the First Nations oral histories, there's just so much power to them and so much 
a lot of them are very accurate when you if you ever get the chance to talk to a first nations elder in the area right. I, yeah. I strongly recommend it because the stories are fascinating when you hear about the great flood that came and you can still see the marks on the high, high up in yeah, the mountains yeah exactly like that. so that that sort of thing about explaining the place and our our connection to it and Absolutely. yeah i mean the squamish Lewat cultural center is great now so because we do have that presence so. definitely that's a yeah. great place to go if you're interested in that kind of thing yeah all right, Stephen, thank you so much for coming in. That was really informative, really interesting. Uh, anyone who's interested can check out Stephen's books online. I think we've uh, plugged them a little bit already, but why don't you just uh, throw those titles at us again one more time? Yeah, um, Only in Whistler, Tales of a Mountain Town, um, and then uh, Top of the Pass, Whistler in the ski to, Sea to Sky area, and they're at uh, Armchair Books in Whistler Village or a lot of bookstores all around as awesome. well. Awesome. Well, thank you again so much for coming in, Stephen. Thanks, Brayden. That was fun. That about does it for this episode of Mountain Mythic. We hope you enjoyed it and that you made it all the way to the end. All right, so thank you once again for tuning in. We want to send a big shout-out to the Press Play Network and Glacier Media. Thanks to WMN Studio and Function Junction and to Barry Link, our executive producer. We'd also like to thank Claire Ogilvie, our editor over there at Peak News Magazine, and our publisher, Sarah Struther. For all the latest Whistler news, head to www.peaknewsmagazine.com or check us out on Facebook. Until next time, I'm Brandon Barrett. And I'm Braden Dupuy. And you have been listening to Mountain Mythic. Mountain Mythic.